2 Corinthians 5.18 says, And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. And that all things is a little connection back to verse 17, where it talks about the new birth and a new creation, and all things are become new, all things are of God. In, in our new birth, the, the, the believer's new man who will go to heaven, born of God instead of born of Adam, all things are of God, all things are become new. That is how God sees us, and we talked about that last week. But now we go on, of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. He has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, as we've talked about before. He took out of the way what stood between us and him because he gave it to Jesus to die under the weight of it. What was it? It was our sin. He's reconciled us to himself. God has never changed. God is not more happy with sin, but he is satisfied with what Jesus did for us on the cross when he died. And though, so we have been reconciled to God. And yet the end of the verse says he has given to us, us who believe, us, Paul and the Corinthians, us who are already in the family of God, us who have that new birth, he's given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Now we are in a religious culture and we talk about the ministry like that's a religious thing. It's not. Those ladies and men that bring you your food in the restaurant, those are ministers. They're serving you the food. Mama at home is your minister serving you the food if you eat at her table. And God has given to us the ministry, the service of reconciliation. He did the work when Jesus became a man, when he went to the cross, when he died under the weight of sin, the work of reconciliation was done. But serving it up, that's what, something that's put on us. <coughs> In verse 19, well, before we go to verse 19, he's given to us the ministry of reconciliation. I'd like to wander through the Bible for a moment if you're using a Schofield Bible, I'll give you the page numbers. They're pew Bibles. There are Schofield reference Bibles. And so we'll go to Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7. That's page 760 if you need that. In Isaiah 52, verse 7, the Lord wrote, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, Thy God reigneth. I didn't put it in my notes, but if you look at the cross-reference to Isaiah 52, 7, you'll see Romans 10, 12 through 15, which says, I think, Verse 15, there it's quoted. How shall they preach except they be sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring God tidings of good things. Paul was quite aware of Isaiah 52, 7 and quoted it in his letter to the Romans. How beautiful are the feet. And we we'll go on from Isaiah 52 to look at something perhaps more familiar at the end of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is risen. They have a, 
seen him, except Thomas was a little slow, but then he saw him too. But now Jesus, in verse 15, says to them, and this, of course, page 1069, Jesus said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Two verbs, go, preach, proclaim, speak with your mouth, publish with your pen. But, but where? All the world. What? The good news. The good news, the gospel. In Greek, it's good news. In, in Old English, gospel is good speak. Good news, you angelion, and angelion is a, a messenger and angel, and eu in Greek is the word, the prefix that means good, good message, preach the good message to all the elect. No, wait, doesn't say that, it says to every creature, to every creature. Very good. And we'll jump back, we'll jump ahead to Luke twenty four forty seven, Luke 24, verse 47, this would be page 1112. And here's Jesus in the same situation, speaking to the same disciples. Luke recorded it a little more thoroughly. Said unto them, It is written, and it behooved Christ to suffer and rise again from, rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. Now we need to Think through this message, he said. Two things to be preached. Repentance. If this was written in English, we'd think that meant what the dictionary says repentance means. In the English dictionary, you look it up, it means turn from sin or be sorry for sin. But this is not written in English. This is written in Greek. And the word translated repentance doesn't mean turn from sin or be sorry for sin. It means change your mind. You're supposed to change your mind. You might remember the Jews in Jerusalem were preached to by Peter on the day of Pentecost, and he told them, Jesus is the one God sent to take away the sins. Change ye your minds. He said, repent ye. We baptized every one of you in regard to the remission of sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. A repentance is a change of mind. The Jewish people in Jerusalem that were not already saved need to change their mind about who Jesus was and believe in him and be saved. Later on, Paul and Barnabas went and preached among many heathen places in Asia Minor and then on into Europe. And when they preached, they said, you guys, don't bring sacrifices to us like we're something special. We're here to tell you that's not what God is like. When Paul got into Athens, he said to the philosophers, I see about a bunch of religious people in this city. You got these little temples everywhere to this God and to that God. And I want you to know that God that made the world doesn't need anything. They needed to change their mind about what God was like, that he's the creator of everything. And he sent his son to be the savior and to be the judge in the future. Sometimes people need to change their minds about what they think they have to do to be saved. We are in a culture that's full of people like that. In Ephesus, Paul said, I preached in chapter 20 of Acts, verse 20, I preached repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. You need to change your mind about God and believe in Jesus. That was Paul's consistent message. 
In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, he simplifies the message. He says, by grace are you saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Why did he say that? Because there are a bunch of people there like there are around us today that think that by doing good works they can please God. And he says, it's not of works. You're saved by grace through faith. It's not even of yourself. It's a gift of God. So you've got to preach. Go and preach what? Repentance. Change your minds about whatever it is that's keeping you from trusting Christ. And preach remission of sins. We don't use remission as much anymore. It's got a synonym, forgiveness of sins, and we say that most often. But in the New Testament, whenever you see either of those words, remit or forgive, remission or forgiveness, they're translating the same Greek word that means forgiveness. Forgiveness of sins, that's the appeal of the gospel. Sins are paid for. Sins were a barrier between God and man, and sins have been taken out of the way. That's this ministry of reconciliation that we've been given to serve up. In, we're going to go on here to look at another way that Paul presents this in Acts chapter 13. Telling the story of Jesus, the one that God raised up saw no corruption. He said there's a prediction about David not seeing corruption, the son of David not seeing corruption, but David's dead and buried and his bones are here. But he whom God raised again saw no corruption. And then here's the teeth of the message, Acts 13, 38, page 1167. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. And by him all that believe are justified, declared righteous from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. He said, sin's a problem, but it's not anymore. There's forgiveness of sins. There is justification. That's where the judge hits his hammer down, his gavel down, and says, righteous. He doesn't just say not guilty. He says, righteous before my eyes. We're justified. We're declared righteous from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Paul told his story about how he got saved on the road to Damascus about three times. The third time, it may be more than that, but three times that got recorded in the book of Acts, once in chapter, <coughs> excuse me, early in the chapters, once in chapter 22, I think, and the last time in Acts chapter 26. And he tells the story the same way at the beginning in Acts chapter 26, page 1185, he says, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And I said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. That much is in all three accounts. But starting at verse 16, Jesus told Paul more than what we have in the earlier two accounts of what he heard on the road. Here's the rest of Jesus' message to Paul as he told it in Acts chapter 26, and Luke wrote it down. Jesus speaking, but rise, stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose to make thee a minister. I'm going to make you a waitress, a waiter. You're going to take the food out there. I'm going to make you a server out of the ministry of reconciliation and a witness of those things which you've seen and the things in which I will appear to thee. You're going to tell people about what you've seen. 
Verse 17, he says, delivering thee from the people, that would be the Jewish people who are going to oppose Saul, who has been persecuting Christians up to this point. He says, I'm going to deliver you from them. You're going to be safe from those that you've been allied with up till now and from the Gentiles. And then he says something that Paul didn't really want to hear. He says, Gentiles unto whom now I send thee. And Paul said, don't say that. (laughs) But he, he didn't argue. And verse 18 tells what he's going to tell the Gentiles. He says, to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. Part of the message that Paul got word for word from the Lord on the road before he got to Damascus are these words, they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. Some people think Paul didn't get saved until he got to Damascus and got baptized. I think when he got the message, he heard these words, that forgiveness of sins, sanctified by faith that is in me. Inheritance. Who gets an inheritance? Who gets, what do you have to do if a wealthy man dies and he leaves an estate and the will divides up the estate? What do you have to do, generally speaking, to be one of those that benefits, benefits from the estate? You have to be in the family. <laughs> if you're in the family, you got no problem unless he wrote you out of it. But to be a receiver of the inheritance, you have to be in the family. And Jesus said, these guys are going to be in my family. They're going to receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance. They're going to be in the family of God. Them that are sanctified by faith that is in me. I think Paul, Saul on the road to Damascus, who became Paul, heard the whole gospel and got saved right then, right there. I don't think there's any doubt about that. I'm going to turn the page in my notes and go on to the next word in this section we're in here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18. This reconciliation. I went ahead and did the little look it up stuff. I looked it up in the the dictionaries. The word reconciliation is used a few times in the Old Testament, hundreds of times in the Old Testament. Most of the time it's translated cover or covering. It's the word kafir, kafar, kafar. Um, When you hear reference to Yom Kippur, that's the word, kippur is kafir. The day of atonement, the word atonement means covering. Before Christ came, the Jews had a annual ritual that the high priest went through where he took the blood of a sacrifice into the holiest place of all and sprinkled it on the mercy seat of God over the Ark of the Covenant. And it was called an atonement that made reconciliation for the sins of the people. It was a covering. It wasn't taking away the sins. It just temporarily covered them up. The same word is used about when Noah, not Moses, Noah, built the ark that saved them from the flood. The ark that saved them from the flood was made out of wood, but he said to him, and as he given the instructions, God, to Noah, he says, pitch it within and without with pitch. And there it's kafir, cover it. Cover it inside and out with waterproofing so it doesn't leak. Cover it. It's a covering word. 
In the Old Testament, it's the ministry of covering. Jesus did better than covering. When he went to the cross, he didn't just cover our sins. The Bible hints that he did take his blood to the true mercy seat of God in heaven that Moses only got a glimpse of and then made a model of it. But Jesus sprinkled his blood on the real mercy seat of God in heaven and made atonement, but not just covering. He bore our sins away in his own body on the tree. The word is used, this reconciliation word is used sometimes in the New Testament, not as often. It's used here. And the dictionary says it means restoration to divine favor. There's another word, that that's katalage, and then there's another word translated reconciliation, helaskamai, which means conciliate, make them be merciful, which is related to helasmos, which means propitiation or satisfaction. And I, I really, I found something, it's in brackets in the notes there, but we have to go to a, a commentator in 1 John chapter 2 to see this that I thought was really worthwhile. 1 John 2.2, 2, and the commentary of this old dude named Albert Barnes. Let me get down here a little further. Just Let me just do this, push this down to where it says, essential thoughts, the essential thoughts. The essential thoughts, starting right here, in regard to him as implied in this word are, his will has been disregarded and his law violated and he has reason to be offended with us. That in that condition he cannot consistently with his perfections and the good of the universe treat us, treat us as if we had not done it. We're in trouble. That it is proper that in some way he should show his displeasure at our conduct either by punishing us or by something that shall answer the same purpose and that the means of propitiation come in here and accomplish this end and make it proper that he should treat us as if we had not sinned. That is, he is reconciled or appeased and his anger is turned away. This is done, it is supposed, by the death of the Lord Jesus, accomplishing in most important respects what would be accomplished by the punishment of the offender himself. In regard to this, in order to a, perf a proper understanding of what is accomplished, it is necessary to observe two things, what is not done and what is. There are certain things which do not enter into the idea of propitiation. They are such as these, that it does not change the fact that the wrong was done. That is a fact which cannot be denied. He who undertakes to make a propitiation for sin does not deny it. It does not change God. It does not make him a different being from what he was before. It does not buy him over to a willingness to show mercy. It does not change an inexorable being to one who is compassionate and kind. The offering that is made to secure reconciliation does not necessarily produce reconciliation. In fact, it prepares the way for it on the part of God. But whether they for whom it is made will be disposed to accept it is another question. When two men are alienated from each other, you may go to B and say to him that all obstacles to reconciliation on the part of A are removed and that he is disposed to be at peace. But whether B will be willing to be at peace is quite another matter. The mere fact that his adversary is disposed to be at peace 
determines nothing in regard to his disposition in the matter. So in regard to the controversy between man and God, it may be true that all obstacles to reconciliation on the part of God are taken away, and still it may be quite a separate matter whether man will be willing to lay aside his opposition and embrace the terms of mercy. In itself considered, one does not necessarily determine the other or throw any light on it. The amount then in regard to the propitiation made for sin is that it removes all obstacles to reconciliation on the part of God. It does whatever is necessary to be done to maintain the honor of his law, his justice, and his truth. It makes it consistent for him to offer pardon. That is, it removes whatever there was that made it necessary to inflict punishment. And thus, so far as the word can be applied to God, it appeases him or turns away his anger or renders him propitious. This it does not in respect to producing any change in God, but in respect to the fact that it removes whatever there was in the nature of the case that prevented the free and full offer of pardon. The idea of the apostle in the passage before us is that when we sin, we may be assured that this has been done and that pardon may now be freely extended to us. I love 1 John 2, 2. And the next phrase, and it is not for ours only, not only for the sins of us who are Christians, for the apostle was writing to such who are Christians. The idea which he intends to convey seems to be that when we come before God, we should take the most liberal and large views of the atonement. We should feel that the most ample provision has been made for our pardon, and that in no respect is there any limit as to the sufficiency of that work to remove all sin. It is sufficient for us, sufficient for all the world. And I skip down here. This is one of the expressions occurring in the New Testament which demonstrate that the atonement was made for all people and which cannot be reconciled with any other opinion. If he had died only for a part of the race, this language could not have been used. The phrase, the whole world is one which naturally embraces all people, is such as would be used if it be supposed that the apostle meant to teach that Christ died for all people, and in such as cannot be explained on any other supposition. If he died only for the elect, it is not true that he's the propitiation for the sins of the whole world in any proper sense, nor would it be possible then to assign a sense in which it could be true. The passage interpreted in its plain and obvious meaning teaches the following things, that the atonement in its own nature is adapted to all people, or that it is as much fitted to one individual or class as another, that it is sufficient in merit for all, that it, that is, that if anyone should be saved, any more should be saved than actually will be, there is no need for any additional suffering in order to save them, that it has no special adaptedness to one person or class more than another, that is, in its own nature, it did not render the salvation of one easier than that of another. It so magnified the law, so honored God, so fully expressed the divine sense of the evil of sin in respect to all people, that the offer of salvation might be made as freely to one as to another, and that if any and all might take shelter under it and be safe. Whether, however, God might not, for wise reasons, resolve that its benefits should be applied to a part only as another question, and one that does not affect the inquiry about the intrinsic nature of the atonement. On the evidence that the atonement was made for all, 
see 2 Corinthians 5.14 and Hebrews 2.9. And that's where we started this, that Jesus died for all, not imputing their trespasses unto them, as it said um, in verse 19 here where we were. I, I know that was a long note, but boy, was it chock full of good stuff. Second Corinthians 5, 9. He's, verse 18, he's given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19, to wit. Here's what it is. Here's the ministry of reconciliation. To wit means let me explain it to you. Let me make it plain and clear. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself not imputing their trespasses unto them. That says so much the very same thing as we just read about in 1 John 2, 2. The world does not have its trespasses charged against them and has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. The first phrase there, God was in Christ. That's what we call the atonement. It's a marvel, not the atonement, excuse me, the incarnation, that marvelous thing that God could become a man. Isaiah 7.14, Isaiah 7.14, back on page 719, says, The Lord himself, Adonai, Jehovah Elohim, will give you a sign. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Do you know Emmanuel means something? It means God with us, God dwelling with us. It's when Matthew quotes it, Isaiah 7.14, he says, which being interpreted is God dwelling with us. Emmanuel means not just this is a son of the Virgin Mary. It means God is living with us. God is dwelling with us. He's staying with us. And in, in the New Testament, the same idea is taught in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. This might well have been the kind of thing that we read in our church service, our doctrinal statements, this might have been used by the churches in those days for the same purpose. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. God was manifest in the flesh. That's Jesus. Justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. What a wonderful thing. God was manifest in the flesh. Going on with that verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that we are up to now, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 19, God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. In verse 14, we read, One died for how many? All. One died for all. In John 1, 7, I, I don't have the page numbers even here. I'm just going to flip to them quickly. John 1, 7, the same came for a witness, John the Baptist, of the light that how many men? All men through him might believe. All men might believe? Are you sure? Don't you just mean the ones that God drags up? Don't you mean the elect? It says all men through him might believe. It's possible because John the Baptist gave that witness. In chapter 3 and verse 16, I know this is familiar, but God loved who? The world. That who believes in him? Whosoever believes in him. 
It's such a wonderful thing. In chapter 4 of John, in chapter 4 of John, verse 42, toward the end of the chapter, the Samaritan men who came out and were kind of snarky toward the woman, <coughs> many more, it says in verse 41, believed because of his own word, but they, they talked to this woman who went out of her way to get them out to meet Jesus and be saved, and she said unto the woman, now we believe not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves, and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Samaritans, they're not Jewish. They're not Gentiles. They're just half-breeds hated by everybody. The Savior of the world. The Samaritans came about because the Assyrian nation emptied out Israel, the ten northern tribes. They took the population away and brought in a population that wasn't Jewish. And then they left a few of the poor of the land that were Jewish there to teach them how not to get killed by God. And so the Jewish people down in Judea, in Judah, didn't think very much of the Samaritans at all. They didn't come to Jerusalem to worship. They were just half-breeds. They were not well-liked. But they, when Jesus met them, said he, they said, we know now, this is the Christ. They were looking forward to the promised one. Even though they much only used Moses' five books of the Old Testament, they knew that God had promised to send a Savior for the world. And they said, this is the Christ, the Savior of the world. And they believed. Now we believe. I think we're going to get to chat with those folks when we get to heaven. That'll be a good thing. The Savior of the world. In Mark sixteen fifteen, we already looked at, he said, go you into all of the all of the well go to some of the world no he said all the world in acts 17 and verse 31 acts 17 and verse 31 we're flying here acts 17 31 paul's in athens preaching to the philosophers and he says to them god wants everybody to change their mind about this stupid idea that god is something that you can carve out of gold or silver or stone. God winked at that ignorance before, but now he wants everyone everywhere to change their minds because he's appointed a day in which he, God, will judge the world in righteousness by that man, Jesus, whom he has ordained. And he's given assurance of that to all men because he raised him from the dead. He raised, Who? All men. He will judge the world... He's given assurance to all men. It's not a limited gospel. He commands who to repent? All men everywhere to repent. Not to be sorry for their sin, to change their mind about their confusion about what God is like, especially God is like gold or silver or stone. Earlier in this message, he said, God that made the world and all things that are therein doesn't need a little box to live in, dwelleth not in temples made with hands. It's not worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything. We, we might have offering plates around here, but it's not because God's broke. God doesn't need what? Now, the pastor might need it, but God's got what he needs. He gives to all life and breath and cars and food and houses and money. He gives to all. Everything you've got, God gave it to you. God doesn't need anything. You need to repent. You need to change your mind if you think God is somebody you can take care of. In Romans 5, just traveling on here, looking at this idea that it's for all. 
Romans 5, verse 18. Therefore, as by the offense of one, Adam, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. It's out there for all men. We have to serve it up. God's reconciled as far as he's concerned, but we have to serve up the food. The cook in the kitchen prepared it. We've got to take it to the table and say, wouldn't you have some of this? Won't you have some of this? Please, we beg you in Christ's stead, have some. First Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, about God our Savior, in verse 3 it says, who will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And verse 6 says, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. And in chapter 4 of 1 Timothy, in verse 10, he says, we labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially or specifically of those that believe. God's done it as far as he's concerned. The whole thing's done but do you believe? Will you believe? Will you take it? Will you have some of this food? Have some of this that's been prepared for you. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. Titus, Paul writes to Titus and says, The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. We're making it known. Now, for the believers, it teaches us, it disciplines us how we ought to live. But for all men, it's the grace that brings salvation. And we look back at our verse again, verse, verse 19. The second phrase there, not imputing their trespasses unto them. And I ask a question, does that happen when they believe? I think it says, I think it says in verse 21, he's made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. He's already made him to be sin for us. The non-imputation of sin happens to the whole world, but the imputation of the righteousness of God happens when you believe. When you believe. He made him to be sin for us do you remember Isaiah? Write the next chapter after where we looked before. Chapter 53, in verse 6, says this. It says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 4, just to lead up to that, he has borne our griefs. Look up here. This hand, if it represented you and me, describes our problem before Jesus came, the wallet representing our sin. We've all got sin on us. But if this is the one God sent, Jesus, who was God in the flesh, he has borne our griefs. Did that happen when I believed? No, it happened when he did it. He has carried our sorrows. We looked at him and said, smitten of God, afflicted the mockers in Jerusalem. He was wounded for our transgressions. It's an historical thing happened back yonder. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace is upon him. With his stripes, we're healed. All we like sheep, we've gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, but the Lord laid on him 
the iniquity of us all. Down at verse 11 of this same chapter, about the Lord and his Son, he, God in heaven, shall see the travail of his soul. He saw it 2,000 years ago on Gethsemane and shall be satisfied. That's the word propitiation again. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many because he shall bear their iniquities. It happened. A man, to have the benefit of this, must believe to receive the gift of salvation, the gift of eternal life, the gift of God's own righteousness. We go back to our passage and see the next phrase. He has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. The same as it said in verse 18, has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Here it says he's committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Exactly the same thought. It's for us to deliver. You think God trusts you? We're entrusted with the gospel. He has committed to the believers. And it's, it's a ministry if it's serving up this reconciliation, but we have to tell them in words. It's a word of reconciliation. In, in verse 20, he says, now then we are ambassadors for Christ. Ambassadors. That's a form of the word that means older. <laughs> and it's senior advisors, if you will. We're ambassadors. Senior representatives down there at the bottom of the column. Ambassadors. Press buo. We're ambassadors for Christ. We don't represent ourselves when we go out in this world. We represent Jesus Christ. And so when we talk to lost people, it's not, would you like to buy my whatever you sell? Would you like to have my service that I offer? No, it's God beseeching you by us. God begging you by us. God asking you. And we pray, we beg, we beseech. We pray in Christ's stead. And our only message is, will you be reconciled to God? He did the work. He made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. This idea of being ambassadors for Christ, Paul used it in one other place in Ephesians 6. He says, for which, for the gospel, I am an ambassador in bonds. I'm in jail. I'm still speaking for Christ. It doesn't matter how my circumstances are. I'm an ambassador that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. He said, pray for me. Pray for me. After all the armor, he says, pray always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. Stay awake to pray. And pray for me that utterance, I need to open my mouth and speak. Utterance may be given unto me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel that's what I'm an ambassador for. That, I'm in jail, but I'm still the ambassador. That in that, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Can you imagine Paul the Apostle, the bold missionary, needed prayer that he would speak boldly? <coughs> it says, as though God did beseech you by us. And when we read pray and we ask and things, those are words that are like we beg you in Christ's head. But when it says God did beseech you, it's that word that's one of my favorites. It's parakaleo. It's the verb form 
of the word for comforter that's in, in, in John's gospel about the Holy Spirit. It means to be called alongside to help. It's, it's the, uh, the attorney word. And here it says God's exhorting you. God's pleading your case by us. We pray you in Christ's stead. If Jesus was here, how would he present the gospel? You think he'd make it harder? I don't think he would. I think he'd make it as winsome as it possibly could be made. The plea, the beg, the ask is be ye reconciled to God. This is our message. This is our whole thing. Nothing stands in the way. Our only concern, our only goal, our only end is that lost people might hear this good news that God through Jesus has worked this reconciliation so nothing stands in the way of any person being received back into eternal fellowship with the Holy God except that own person's willingness to accept this free gift. Look back at John here as we finish up. John chapter 3, right after verse 16, we have verse 17. God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world. He didn't send him to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth in him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. In verse 36 of the same chapter, he that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Two chapters further, chapter 5 at the end of the chapter, verse 24, Jesus speaking said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. And I have a list there that goes on and on and on about this offer, this offer of life that Jesus gives and that the apostle gives in the book of Acts. Some very familiar verses. How am I to be saved? The jailer in Philippi asked Paul that. He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved on thy house. The last, the, the purpose passage in the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 21, these signs, these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. Well, we, we run out of time and we come to the end, but not quite to the end of the chapter, but I would read verse 21 with you again. He has made him to be sin for us. He who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Pray with me, please. Father in heaven, as we look at these words and are reminded over and over and over again what Christ did for us to work this reconciliation and how to us who believe has been committed this ministry, this serve it up, bring it out to the table so that people who have not believed will believe and be part, will accept their side of the reconciliation that God is offering to all the world that he's paid for the sins of. Father, help us to be bold as Paul prayed to be bold, that he would make known this wonderful work of salvation through the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.